0: Kings chapter 8 and verses 46 to 51, first up, can you hear me? Um, Yes, we're starting right in the middle of a prayer, so um, for those who don't know, this is the, um, this whole chapter is about the dedication of the temple and the Ark of the Covenant has been brought into the temple. And... um, It's a great day of festival. In fact, it's a whole week of of festivities. Um, They say that the um, sacrifices were too too, too many to number. Um, Even Solomon um, offered 22,000 cattle and 120,000 goats and sheep. So you you can imagine the scene and the smell. Um, But it it is a a time of great rejoicing. And um, Solomon gets up. And thanks God and acknowledges God's faithfulness to, um, to him, uh, to, to, to the Israelites. And we take up the, um, the prayer in verse 46. When you people go to war against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to his own land far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors and say... We have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you toward the land you gave their fathers, towards the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Forgive all the offences they have committed against you, and cause their conquerors to show them mercy. For they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron smelting furnace. And then We're going to read the first 17 verses of Luke chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, sorry, yes. Um, familiar passage, I think. Okay. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, sorry, I can't see it very well, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, load the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in the spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks Peter. <clears throat> well, uh, this is time of the gathering. Um, we like to have our kids in and with us so we can uh, be reminded that we, a church is a family. Um, so they're part of the singing, part of the reading. Um, but now if they would like to go to the back, Caleb's already there, um, or like to hang out over here, then that's totally fine. Um, our kids always go through the same... T- um, um, uh, readings and sermons uh, series that we do we get some of the same teaching just on a kid level um, and they'll be back with us after the sermon so we are in uh, Mark chapter 2 love for you to have your Bibles open uh, to there as we look at this word um, and if you're new with us as well um, my name's Pete and I'm the pastor here so let's pray together Heavenly Father we thank you for your word uh, which is just such full of good news for us I mean, thank you for Mark chapter 2 when it teaches us about what it means uh, to have our sins forgiven. Father, I pray that you would speak to us now through your word and transform us right in our seats so that we might know you and love your grace even more. Amen. Uh, well, I was in uh, Melbourne Central. Uh, a couple of days ago, waiting for a train, and uh, I was—the train was about ten minutes away. So I started watching the big screen TVs, you know, the ones that are up um, uh, above the track. And as usual, they're playing advertisements, commercials. I'm kind of half engaged, um, and, and one comes on, and, and and this particular ad goes like this: um, You have this super sleek car, and it's and it's racing through these empty urban streets clearly not Melbourne because uh, they're empty but anyway it's racing through and turning corners and everything and as it does' um, these pedestrians by the on, on the um, pavement are kind of craning their necks to look and they kind of have this face full of like envy and jealousy and they're like what is that car it's amazing and then the car suddenly gets kind of teleported from urban uh, to a beach and the car races down to the beach and out pops these, Un- unbelievably ridiculously good-looking people, two guys, two girls, and they're kind of racing down to the sand, and they're hugging and they're smiling like no sane people ever do. Um, but, and then they get there, and then it goes, and, and then it goes, Mazda. <laughs> uh, and it kind of caught my attention, because I'm like, that's really interesting. What's, what's this ad trying to say to me? Well, I think it was trying to say to me, uh, you've got a problem. <laughs> it's a real problem. The problem is that you are not the sort of person that people crane their heads to look at, right? Uh, And you're not the sort of person who has BFFs, who kind of do spontaneous beach runs and hug each other and stuff. You're not that sort of person. But you could be, if you've got a Mazda 3, (laughs) Isn't that interesting? And and I don't think it's that particular ad. That's kind of the ad that we see everywhere, isn't it? It's the same message. There is a problem. There's something lacking in you. There is something that you are unfulfilled in some way. You have not yet reached your potential as a human being. It's interesting, actually, that the message of Mark's gospel is, to some extent, the same. There is a problem. You are lacking something. The difference is actually not the problem. The difference is the solution. Because Marx says that uh, consumerism uh, won't work. Uh, The solutions that the world offers for your problem won't work because our problem is such that no car in the world, no other material possession, no attainment, no career success, no romantic relationship can possibly fill or fix. The problem is far deeper than that and... The solution needs to be far greater. Today, I want to um, show us that from Mark 2 that the problem is deeper than we realize. The problem is also more offensive than we realize. And the solution is more costly than we realize. If you're taking notes, those will be my three kind of signposts as we go. The problem is deeper than we realize, it's more offensive than we realize, and it's more costly. Then we realise. So first of all, how is it deeper than we realise? Well, as we come to Mark two, um, we see Jesus and he's he's coming back from a whirlwind preaching tour of Galilee, and he comes back to his kind of home base of Capernaum, and he he sets himself up in a private house, probably uh, a friend or a family member. And people come from everywhere, and they cram into this place. It's standing room only. In fact, there's people outside the door kind of trying to get a glimpse or hear what's going on inside. And imagine the scene. Imagine this room, actually. Imagine this room just full of way more people than are here today. And there's people peering in through the windows. And and let's say you're you're kind of sitting here trying to hear Jesus, and, and suddenly you kind of go, there's a bit of dust falls on your head. You go, well, oh, that's a bit weird. So you kind of brush it off. But then suddenly, like a, a bit of a kind of clump of mud and straw, suddenly bangs off your head as well. And you're like, what's going on? And then you look up, and there's a hole in the roof. <laughs> Here's one I prepared earlier. <laughs> there's this gaping hole, and and to your amazement, this this hole through it is being lowered a man on a stretcher. And the stretcher, and it comes down, and it comes down, and people are, like scrambling to get out of the way. And it comes down and, and, and it falls at the feet of Jesus. And you look up, and through the hole, there's peering like four guys that are kind of peering through. And they're kind of mumbling apologies for the destruction of property that's just occurred. Uh, but their their faces are full of hope. They're full of hope that maybe this Jesus can can do something for their friend because as you look at this at this man on the stretcher you realize he's he's paralyzed he's a paralytic or maybe a paraplegic he can't move i love this actually because i think it's a brilliant example of true friendship true friendship because this what they've just done is is a huge risk it may cost them it may cost them financially roofs aren't cheap to repair it might cost them socially the the embarrassment of doing such a public thing if if actually it doesn't follow through for them if Jesus can't do anything it might even cost them jail time if charges are pressed by the owners of the house but they don't mind because for them it's all worth it to get their friend to the feet of the master I think true friends get friends To Jesus, no matter what the cost. But why risk it all? Well the answer seems obvious, they're they're concerned because their friend can't walk. In those days there's no disability pension, there's no safety net. Uh, He can't walk so he can't work, he can't work so he can't provide for himself or for his family, he can't contribute to society. And so surely everyone thinking the issue is obvious, But Jesus sees deeper, doesn't he? See, he looks past the surface problem, the the problem that everyone else sees, and he looks to a far greater tragedy. The man's most urgent need, actually, was not his physical ailment, but his spiritual one. So Jesus looks at this crippled, helpless man. He sees his faith and the faith of his friends as well, actually. And he gives him the one thing he ultimately needs. Jesus looks down at him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. The deepest problem of every human being is that we are all completely and utterly enslaved to sin. And sin is this. We have all done wrong against God. We've all done wrong against God. Imagine this scenario two parents have a, a dearly loved child. <laughs> parents here can get it, uh, otherwise, just imagine. <laughs> And, and and this child is a girl and, and they, they raise her up and they, they give her everything she needs, a shelter and, and direction and guidance and a home and they, they raise her up and they give her everything, the best schools, the best education and she uh, grows up to adulthood and then she applies for university in a different city and she gets in uh, and her parents go, great, go to university and study and she, she moves away and they set her up in a house and they pay her rent and they pay her food bills and they do it all for her. But something interesting happens. Uh, once she's done, she's moved away and she's set herself up. Um, suddenly, uh, she, the visits start being not so often. And the phone calls kind of dry up after a while too. And then suddenly, actually, there's no contact at all and not even a Christmas card or a birthday card. She cuts off contact with her parents. What would we say to that if we heard that story? We'd say, how horrible, how selfish, how wrong. You'd say to the parents, cut her off. <laughs> Don't keep giving her allowance, cut her off. And we'd be right, wouldn't we? It would be a just thing. How much more then should we be cut off if we ignored and rejected the God of the universe who made us, who poured out his love and affection and blessing on us, who intricately wove us to to be flourishing human beings, giving us every blessing, uh, and then we ignored him. We didn't talk to him, we didn't relate to him. In fact, we stopped even calling him God at all. How, how more inf- infinitely would we be deserving of being cut off? Surely, the cry for us to be punished and dealt with would be even greater. And that's the first part of the problem. That's the first part of the problem of sin is that from the moment of our birth, we've been stuck in a pattern of wrongdoing against God in our words, in our deeds, in our thoughts, and our beliefs. Because ultimately, we reject Him as our Father, as our God, and we go our own way. But it gets worse. Now, imagine that same young woman, Um, she gets a boyfriend at university. And, and her boyfriend, um, and she meets his parents as well. And, and actually, she starts hanging out with them and actually begins to relate to them and go around for all these meals. And, uh, and she starts to call them mum and dad. <laughs> Still not a word to her, her real parents, but she calls these, this new family her family. She starts spending all her time and love and attention to them. And to make matters worse, we know, but she doesn't, that these this family that she's um, got into are con artists, master manipulators, determined to strip this young woman of everything that she has and leave her destitute and broken. This is the second part of the problem of Sin. Because the natural alternative to loving God as the ultimate thing is to love other things as the ultimate things. Our attention, our love, our affection gets changed direction to something else. And so we we direct it at material things or relationships or social status or career advancement or anything else that this world could produce or make. And in them we find our self-worth and our value. But they're con artists, these things. They promise the world, but eventually they leave us destitute and exhausted. If you put your love and affection and, and your trust into anything that this world has to offer, it will disappoint you and it will not fill up the void in your heart, even a Mazda 3. It'll be like trying to fill up an Olympic swimming pool with a cup measure. All it will do is leave you just as empty and actually utterly exhausted by the effort. So sin, defined by the Bible, is wrongdoing against God, both in how we have rejected Him, but also how we have replaced Him with other things, other gods that we worship. So what does this young woman need? What is going to solve her problem? Only one thing, really. Forgiveness and restoration by her real parents. And that's what Jesus offered this man, this paralyzed man on this stretcher. Now, this, this man, he could have been a total legend, an absolute awesome bloke, champ, a moral awesome guy. Could have been. Might not have been. Might have been a horrible person. Might have been full of resentfulness and anger, a total grump. (laughs) We're not actually told what he was like, not even given his name. That's the point. Because it doesn't matter. The point is that moral or horrible, we're all on the same playing field. Inside him, that man, and all of us is sin that leads to unfaithfulness, selfishness, arrogant pride, and ignorance. And Jesus looks deep into this man's heart and he sees his faith and the faith actually well what was that faith the faith was that he had to come to Jesus to to have his problem solved to have his life healed he just got a much greater solution than he could have possibly dreamed. Because Jesus looks down at him and says, "I forgive you." More beautiful words were never heard. I forgive you. And he was. Of course, not everyone's happy about this. In that room, there are the Jewish religious elite. The, the priests, the, they were called the Pharisees. The Jewish religious elite. And they were there, and they know exactly what Jesus is saying, and they are horrified at him. Horrified. Why? Why? Because they know that only one person can forgive a wrongdoing. And that's the person who the wrongdoing has been done against, right? I can't forgive a wrongdoing that's been done against John. Only John can. So what is Jesus saying? When he says, I forgive you, your sins are forgiven, and sins are wrongdoing against God, what's he saying? saying, I'm God. He's identifying himself with God himself. And every religious leader there knew it. And so they looked at him and said, Blasphemy. (laughs) And Jesus knew it. He knew what was happening in their hearts. So he turns and he speaks directly to them. He says, Why are you thinking these things? Verse 9. Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take up your mat? And walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. For so long, I actually got this verse completely wrong. I thought he was saying that it's much easier to say uh, your um get up a mountain and walk than to forgive sins, because to forgive sins is the harder thing. But I actually don't think that's what's going on. I think actually it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because the, the the outworking of that, the solution to that, is internal and invisible. You can't see, you can't tell if this man's sins are forgiven or not. But to say, take up your mat and walk, that necessitates a very tangible outcome. It's either, he's either going to or he's not. That's much harder. And so Jesus says that to say, I'm going to show you that I have authority to do with well. it. I have authority to to Do this internal spiritual forgiveness and healing by doing something that is tangible and physical and that everyone will be able to see. So he says, get up. And he gets up. He takes up his mat and he walks out. I'm assuming to go and celebrate with his faithful friends. So why did Jesus heal the man? Well, was he compassionate for his physical ailment? Of course he was. Jesus loves the whole body, body, physical. He made it all, spirit and body. But there's something else going on here. He does this miracle to prove beyond doubt that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive our sins. He has the authority to deal with our deepest problem. And for some, this incredible miracle was... Blew them away. They went away thinking, who is this guy? How can I know him? But for some, the opposite reaction happened. For the religious leaders, it made them feel even more offended at him. Because it's not just a deep problem, it's also an offensive problem. Mark finishes this story, this little vignette, and he just kind of ups it. doesn't tell us what happened to the man. We don't know. Instead, he just propels us right into another one. And these two stories are not random. They're actually intricately linked together. So Jesus walks out and he goes down by the the lake. And he comes across this guy called Levi. Now Levi, we we find out, is a tax collector. What does that mean? Well, actually it means he was something like a customs officer. His job was to collect road tolls, um, customs tolls, that sort of thing. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, they hated tax collectors. Why? Well, these tax collectors they supported the Roman taxation system, which the Jewish people found incredibly burdensome and harsh, and they hated the Romans. But they also were um, defiled themselves according to Jewish law by hanging out with Gentiles, non-Jews, all the time, and so the the, the Pharisees were not okay with that. But perhaps worst of all, these uh, tax collectors were most often unscrupulous and dishonest and corrupt. They made a living by um, claiming more tax than they really needed to. And so they often got exceptionally wealthy and ripped off probably thousands of people. The modern day equivalent, I think for us, might be something like a payday loan shark. You know what I'm talking about? You know, you walk into like a, a pawnbroker's and get a thousand bucks, and you think that's all good, but in the fine print there's all these hidden fees and charges, and you just get further and further into debt and become unable to pay it back. I think that's probably the sort of person that we're looking at, someone who preys upon the weak and the needy and the desperate and rips them off. <laughs> so the Pharisees are thrown into absolute fury when they discover that Jesus... Is sharing a meal with this guy. He's gone. Jesus has gone to Levi's house, and he's reclining at table. That means it wasn't just a normal meal. It wasn't just come around for dinner. This is a feast. This is a celebration. This is a full-on party. In those days, having doing hospitality, inviting someone to share food with you it was not just uh, kind of a one-off little thing that no one really minds or, or thinks too much about. Uh, it's a big deal. To come and share table with someone was to say to that person. You're part of my family. You've come under my roof, under my protection. You are linked with me. I am linked with you. We're family together. You probably read um, just in the papers in the last few months um, uh, this kind of thing happening where politicians um, are caught having sh- uh, di- meals or dinners with shady underworld characters. Read about that? It gets into the paper's front page. And what do we think? Well, we think, oh, what, a, what corruption. What a horrible thing. How appalling that a, this politician, our representative might go and have a meal with someone like that. And for good reason, we think that. And I think the Pharisees are probably thinking something similar. They're looking at Jesus and going, we assume that this is proof that this Jesus is just as corrupt and blasphemous as we thought he was. It's all proof for us he is not good he's dodgy because look at whose table he's sharing but jesus of course he's again uh, aware of what's going on so he responds and he kind of it's kind of cryptic verse 17 he says it's not the healthy that need a doctor but the sick i have not come to call the righteous but sinners See, Jesus certainly gave the respected religious people the time of day in the Gospels. He did share meals with them. Think of Nicodemus who came to him at night and and peppered him with questions. He he definitely hung out with the religious people. He normally let them come to him, though. What he did, though, is he pursued the rabble, the outcasts of society, the disreputable, the untouchables, Those he pursued, those he went to, those he called, just as he called Levi. And here's the reason. Because he did not come for people who do not believe they have a problem. He came for people who knew for sure that they did. Now remember that the Pharisees had all heard Jesus teaching, right? Because they were there in that room with him. And what was Jesus doing? He was teaching, he was preaching his message What was that message? Well, Mark tells us in chapter 1, repent and believe the good news. What's repent mean? Confess that you are a sinful person and that you need forgiveness. The Pharisees' problem was that they heard those words and thought, yes, Jesus, definitely. Those people definitely need to repent and believe the good news. They were, the Pharisees, they read the Old Testament and all the promises of God that that those who God loves are those who keep his law. And they read those promises and thought, yes, that's us. (laughs) We are the ones who keep God's law. We are the ones who are righteous. The problem was not actually, though, whether they were good or not at keeping some external moral law. The problem was that their hearts were corrupt. They were hypocrites. Not in the way we we kind of use the word hypocrite, that someone who says something and does another. No, no, no. they were hypocrites because they said something. They did the same thing, but their hearts were completely wrong. Their motivations were completely corrupt. They were selfish. They were elitist. And they were self-righteous. That was their problem. And the paralytic man shows them the truth. That it's not about what you do but what your heart does. And in every person's heart is sin. Melbourne is a city that loves the idea of justice, isn't it? <laughs> we love the idea of social justice. If you work in that area, this is the place to be in Melbourne. Uh, justice is almost usually universally regarded as this ultimate value and something to be called for, and it is. It's something that's right at the heart of who God is. But what's totally offensive to most Melburnians is the idea that we ourselves are perpetrators of injustice. We've done it a thousand little ways. We, in who we have ignored, in the consumeristic habits that we've cultivated. Simply by being part of a system that is inherently unjust, we have been part of social injustice. So what do we do? Well, we feel icky about it, don't we? So we try and kind of measure up. So we, we donate more money. We volunteer more hours. We shop more ethically. We do all these things to try and deal with this problem that we know inside our hearts that we are ourselves unjust. But the motivation for all that isn't to bring justice into the world. The motivation isn't, to, isn't altruistic. The motivation is that so we might feel better. (laughs) So the motivation is actually selfish. The God who made the world is a God of pure justice and our problem is not that God might be a judge but that God might judge us. The twin stories we see here uh, show us this truth that we by nature want to see the problem as something out there. And the solution is out there as well. Preferably, it's a problem that resides in other people far more than it resides in us. And so we become very confident in our own ability to be right. But Jesus says, don't be naive. Don't be offended. I've come not just for those who know for sure that they are sinners in need of a savior. I've come for those with hard hearts too. People who, who are sure that they're good people who need nothing. We need to realize that we're on the same playing field as the people we despise. You see, friends, you and I are in the same boat as the payday loan shark. We're in the same boat as the underworld figure. We're in the same boat as the people smuggler. We're in the same boat as the politician who has affairs with his staffers. We're in the same boat as an egotistical U.S. president. We're in the same boat as a maniac dictator. Because the ultimate problem is the same deep within our hearts. Sure, we don't act the same. It's true. We're better at covering it up. But the problem is still the same. That wrongdoing against God and worshipping others instead of Him leads us to a life of selfishness. And that can be worked out in all sorts of ways. And so with all these people and more, we have this in common. We need God's mercy We need God's grace. We need his forgiveness. Otherwise, we will be judged for all that we have done or not done. We are all, friends, by nature, just like that man on the stretcher, utterly helpless, completely powerless, and in absolute need of a true and good and faithful friend. a friend who can provide for us a solution that is costly. Hopefully now we begin to see the seriousness of our situation. Uh, But just as Mark puts these in no uncertain terms, he also puts the solution in no uncertain terms, that there is hope and it is a glorious hope. Remember last week we, we heard about Jesus' encounter with a leper. And Jesus heals the leper by touching the leper. What normally happens when you touch someone who's uh, filled with a contagious disease? Well, you get the disease and the contagious person stays the same. What happens when Jesus touches the leper? The leper gets healed. Jesus' purity flows out into the leper's impurity. His wholeness passes him, so the leper becomes whole. Now, the Pharisees, seeing Jesus in the house of Levi, they expect that Levi's corruption would corrupt Jesus. But what actually happens? The opposite. Jesus' integrity overwhelms Levi, and he is called. He becomes one of the 12 disciples. When Jesus touches someone, their sins are forgiven, and they are made spiritually whole. But it doesn't become free. It doesn't come without cost. Remember our rebellious young woman? Well, how is it possible that she could be freed from the clutches of the artist family? Her parents would have to come and rescue her, wouldn't they? They'd have to come in and and not just come in and rescue her and, and forgive her, they'd have to pay her debts. They'd have to come and absorb all her wrongdoing and her mistakes into themselves. They'd have to absorb not just the physical cost but the emotional wrongdoing that they have experienced. They'd have to say, it's okay, you're forgiven, you're restored, welcome back into our family. Family, uh, forgiveness never comes cheap. Debts never just disappear. They must either be paid in full or absorbed by the one to whom they are owed. The debt of our sin is that we have to be judged and be found guilty and ultimately given what our crimes deserve, and that's eternal and physical and spiritual death. But the forgiveness Jesus offers the paralytic and what he offers the low life of society and everyone, all of us here today, could not be offered unless he completed what he came to do. What he came to do was actually far more costly than boring a hole in the roof. What was costly for him was to have holes bored in himself. In his hands, in his feet, in his side. His death was the death we deserved. His life is the life we are given. The greatest act of the greatest friend is to lay down his life for sinners like us. And every day we live life in a culture that says, Your deepest problems can be fixed and your deepest longings fulfilled if only you could get this or that. And if you believe it, what will happen? Well, the fruit of your life will begin to overflow into stress and anxiety and bitterness and resentfulness and anger and arrogance, and exhaustion. And you'll look down your nose at others who are not like you, and you'll look down with indignation at those who you deem worse than yourself, and you'll become blind to your own problems. Do you get furious at other people? In your workplace? In your family? In your church? Do you think, how can they do that? How can they get away with that? How dare they? Well, if you do, it means you have yet to believe that you are not healthy but sick. And you've yet to believe that you are in the same point of desperation as a paralyzed man on the stretcher. Friends, the only solution is to come back to the gospel, to realize how deeply flawed you are, how desperately you are in need of grace and forgiveness, how utterly helpless you are before Jesus. How all your attempts to find peace with God are useless unless you come before him as one desperate and in need and find a new humility that's grounded in his good news. That's all by grace. And that him, he looks over us and says, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Come into my abundant life. I paid it for you. I absorbed your debt. I did it all for you, for your sake, because I love you. So love me. That's the gospel, friends. Let's pray. God, we are so desperate and so in need of your grace and your forgiveness. Father, open our eyes so that we might see the problems in our own hearts. Open us, even if it's painful. May we see it so that we might be set free to receive your gracious forgiveness and so therefore offer grace and patience and love and compassion to others who otherwise we look down upon and feel superior then. May we all see that we're in the same boat with the same problem, the same need, and the same Savior. Amen.